Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Are you sick and tired of high electricity bills? Anywhere from $200 per month or higher? Do you own a home or business and have been looking for a reputable solar company to give you a no-pressure-free quote? Well, contact Ethical Solar Solutions today and see why hundreds of people are saving thousands of dollars every year making the switch to solar without spending a dime out of pocket. Get your obligation-free quote today. In this episode, I sit down with Dr. Jason Park, one of the top striking coaches in the UFC today. His client list consists of guys like Anderson Silva, Brian Ortega, and the list goes on. We dive deep into his journey and how he was able to make it all happen, from achieving a PhD to traveling the world to cornering some of the top talent in the UFC. This is his story. So we are live. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a very, very, very special guest in front of us today. This individual happens to be one of my striking coaches. I had the privilege to be able to train with Dr. Jason Park when I first came to the United States, right at the start of COVID. We became very close friends, and he was one of my favorite trainers that I've ever got to train with. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to introduce Dr. Jason Park. Jason, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, introduce yourself, and we'll go from there. All right. Well, thank you so much for having me. You know, it's a, it's a ton of fun always being in your presence. So it's nice to be able to record it and have everyone get to witness what we talk about. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and we're putting a filter on Probably, ladies and Yeah, gentlemen. not everything, but <laughs> yeah. a part of it, a teaser trailer. Absolutely. They have to find us with a beer afterward if they really want to. <laughs> yeah, in Thailand, going forward with all of those things. Yeah. So, you know, a little bit about me. Um, you know, people usually see me in three different lenses. Uh, I'm a doctor of physical therapy who focuses on sports injury and return to sport. I'm also a strength and conditioning coach. So I work with a lot of athletes in season and off season. And lastly, which is probably what people know me most for is being a striking coach for a lot of both Muay Thai, kickboxing and MMA athletes in the UFC and Bellator. Wow. Wow. And yes, Jason, that's an unbelievable resume. Um, when I was first introduced to you and was seeing exactly what it is that you were doing, I was in, unbelievably impressed. I couldn't believe somebody was able to get their doctorate, be cornering some of the top UFC talent, top MMA fighters all across all organizations, and be as well-traveled as someone like you. And for somebody who's as young as you are, that's an unbelievable, very impressive feat. So I really want to dive deep into your journey and how you were able to accomplish as much as you have, how you were able to have just been on the ultimate fighter as one of the coaches for Brian Ortega mm -hmm. and the Alexander Volkanovsky type saga, which was awesome. And I absolutely had an amazing time watching both the fight and the series. But I really want to dive deep, especially for not only my audience, but for your audience or for anybody else who might inspire to try and become the next Dr. Jason Park, why don't we go into detail how that all came together? I want to start from the very source, from when you threw your first punch or first kick and said, you know what, martial arts is what I see myself doing for the rest of my life. Sure, sure. So, you know, like, I think uh, I have a story like a lot of martial artists, um, mine especially because both of my parents are immigrants who came over here from Korea. You know, one of the hardest things I think growing up in the States is a lot of playing sports is based around how well your parents participate in your life and participate in your team life, right? And so a lot of my friends I saw have parents, you know, go out and practice, throw the ball with them, you know, teach them how to shoot a basket, be coaches or assistant coaches on their their little league teams. And, you know, my parents wanted to support me in the best way, but my father was working very hard. You know, he was working um, in the corporate world and trying to make ends meet. And then of course, provide for 
us to be comfortable. My mom uh, is an artist and is unfamiliar with that whole kind of, not just only uh, the skills needed to be a team mom, but also like didn't grow up around team sports like we do here in the States. Um, so I always felt kind of like odd when I was playing like t-ball, soccer. I didn't actually understand how to be athletic, to run, to um, like just do anything athletic, right? It just didn't come naturally to me. And it kind of turned me off on a lot of sports because you just saw everyone else get playing time and you just didn't feel like you were confident. And then uh, one of my mom's friends suggested that maybe I do Taekwondo. And then I, I stepped in the gym at the age of six. And, you know, it's the first time where you get to really embrace being, even though you're in a class, like a one-on-one scenario. And at the end of the day, it's the first time I really felt like a meritocracy, which I think a lot of um, immigrants and people of color really do feel like, like we want to be in a situation where we have a chance if we put in the work that it doesn't get overshadowed because of someone like is a mom or dad on the team. Right. So like, that's why I fell in love with martial arts. Like you beat up the other guy, you outpoint them, like you win. Now it doesn't always come out that way in, in real life. As you go into competitions in my childhood, I realized that, yeah, like sometimes there is self favoritism. There's nepotism inside the gym. There's going to be favoritism uh, in tournaments, but you just felt that you had a little bit more say in the matter because one-on-one. At the end of the day, and this is something I say to all my fighters to this day alone, is like for all the talk, all the hype, all like the odds, at the end of the day, when you walk into that ring, you step through the ropes or the cage door closes, like it's just you with another person. He's not the champion anymore. The belt's outside of that ring. Mm -hmm. And so that's something I really love about martial arts. I think that's what um, we love about boxing, MMA, combat sports. And I'm glad that MMA is becoming a vehicle that's really interesting. I think um, it, it really captures that feeling of meritocracy and that anything can happen to anybody. I think Rose shows that really well when she says, I'm the best. And you see that she is just like all of us. We're not sure of what we're going to do, what we're capable of. And uh, from the very first day in martial arts, that's what I felt. And so from there in Taekwondo, I, you know, competed and, and trained there. I was like a young kid, but of course, like you, you become a black belt at some point. I became a second degree black belt. I competed for wow. seven years. That's awesome, man. That was like around to the age of, I took a break for a couple of years, but Basically, I was 14, 15, right? Okay. Around halfway through high school. And then what happened was I had friends who were three years older, right? And in Korean, we, we really call older friends like Hyung, like which means older brother for males. Okay. Right? You'll hear it like Oppa is like how females call older brother. Hyung is how guys call other, older brother, right? You have a little bit of a, a gender term for who is this person calling out that relationship? Right. So all my youngs, like, you know, were the ones that beat me up in sparring. I was pushed by them. I was trying to be better than them, trying to aspire to be more than what I should be allowed to be. And I think that's beautiful in, in any kind of training environment when you have people who are not only stronger, but better, more experienced, older. It's like, it's a... The difficulty of that level is like it's you're designed not to win. It's like contra, right? Like you're not supposed to win contra with three lives, but you keep trying and trying, you die and you lose, and then you go, okay, I, I missed it at this point. How do I get to the next point? Gotcha. And I think that's the scenario that I had when I was young, and then when I turned 14, going on to 15, they all graduated high school and they went to college. And so I was really picked with the point of going. Do I want to be the top dog in this gym or do I want to start something new? And it didn't really settle well with me to be like, oh, I'm the top. No one's going to challenge me. I'm the best. Wow. So I wanted to go into learn boxing. So I looked up a gym that I could go learn boxing. I knew if boxing works. So how old were you at this point in time? 
probably 15, about to become 16. 15 years old. Okay. And it's time to start looking into boxing. Yeah. So let's, let's go from there. So then, yeah, I looked up a gym in the area. One of my uh, high school friends was training at a gym called Boxing Works. And so I said, okay, that's about 10 to 15 minutes away from my home. I traveled in there and I, I started taking the boxing class. Of course, I still remember that very first day, which is, you know, you think you're doing well. And then <laughs> I, uh, I remember like just doing a normal class, hitting mids, jumping rope, like shadow boxing. The next day I tried to like sit up out of bed. I remember like, oh, my abdominals are cramping. So I had to like roll to the side, sit up. I was like, what the fuck happened? <laughs> yeah. And I remember later too, like I was trying to take out groceries for my mom when she came home and I like, she has a, a station wagon. So I reached up and I was like, I can't like pull down the door. Because I, my abs never, I, and I've been doing Taekwondo martial arts, but it's just different with boxing. Right. And this is like after years of Taekwondo, like it just felt different. Um, so like, that's really dope. And, you know, as I was doing it, I, I think there was something in me being a Korean, like I really wanted to like do something that could challenge like all the kickboxing I saw. Like I want to mix okay. Taekwondo and boxing. Very cool. And then eventually over time, short, short story comes like, just go i kept watching the muay thai class and seeing my coach who is still my coach now brian popejoy i was like i've never seen training like this so i go mm. why fight the harder battle and try to figure it out on my own instead of going with the system that has been training for this and that's that's kind of like what led me from boxing into muay thai and uh you know, I think that really speaks a lot. Instead of trying to, as a life lesson, like, oh, like, let me try to figure it out on my own, which means that you don't want to do the work in the, in the light. You don't want to do it in front of everyone and fail. You kind of want to just like, oh, let me just see what's going on. Okay. And my insecurity kind of go off into my corner where no one can see me and try to figure it out. And that happens a lot in, in martial arts, right? Uh, that's where we have so many McDojos and these things where you go, that, why do you think in your delusion that, that would work? But the beauty of combat sports is that unless you're going out and fighting all the time, and even if you do, you don't know if this will work against someone else who also knows the game and is of caliber. Right. right? Because you can get in street fights and you go, oh, like I beat up a guy, but you don't know if he's like strong, like, is he ready for it? Whereas comic sports, like, you're pitted against someone your size, your weight, your experience. Like, now you got to figure out if your stuff works or does not work. And so I think there's a lot of beauty in boxing, judo, jiu-jitsu, Muay Thai, where, like, you see, like, people are putting their hypothesis to the test. Gotcha. And that, in essence, was what got me into taking my next step from a traditional martial art into, like, a combat sport fully. And, uh, like, led me to here. So that's an amazing, amazing story. Thank you very much for sharing that. And Jason, just kind of walk me through that 15 year old young man who decided to walk through the front doors of boxing works and start to walk down a new path and how that's impacted your life today. Let's, let's dive into that a little bit. What was it like going on in your head at 15 years old, walking in through those gym doors for the first time? Were you afraid? Were you nervous? Did you feel comfortable? Were you confident? What was going on in your head? And for somebody else who might be 16, 15 years old, who might be watching this or listening to this, might be living in a place like Los Angeles or somewhere across the United States or anywhere internationally, and they have a similar aspiration. What would you recommend to them? Or what advice could you share with them to get them to make that decision to go through those doors? You know, definitely not confident or, or ex like, or uh, I forgot what the other word that you use. You, but definitely nervous, scared, all of the above of the negative emotions. And I think that's what stops a lot of people first is that first fear. We talk about this a lot where, Sometimes it's just going like, okay, this is going to suck. Yep. 
And I, I, <laughs> I like, I still feel that about jujitsu, even though I've been around jujitsu for such a long time. Each day, it's like just like, man, I don't, I don't want to fail at doing a back roll. But like, the first thing is just going there. Yep. You have to just go, and you you have to accept that you're going to fail, and it's going to not always be fun. And then I think finding the joy in the process. So I think when I went in, I knew it was going to be tough, but I knew like I didn't want what I had before, which is like my default. Like I'm going to be what the best at 15. If that doesn't sound right. So, <laughs> and, and, and you know, this, this is something that I think we talk about Al Bundy and a lot of people, right? Like that kind of character who you see always talking about their high school days or some like their college days. And that's like the brightest point of their life. And I just knew by watching like all the people who were older than me around me, it's like life is long. So I want to start early and invest early to really uh, grow as quickly as possible. I knew I wanted to do something in striking martial arts and I know there's something about getting hit, being put down and like knowing how to get back up, you know, spoke to me, like just knowing how to have that kind of resilience that, you know, people are afraid of getting hit. Right. Yeah. And, you know, there's something I talk a lot about taking no disrespect to wrestlers or jujitsu athletes, because it's a very tough sport. I always will correct it when they say, Oh, I had a hundred fights. And I was like, no, you had a hundred matches. <laughs> In boxing, we'll say, you might have a hundred matches, but they're also fights. And I think there's something significant about getting hit that changes the tone of things. Mm. And look, boxing might be easier than a wrestling or jiu-jitsu match in terms of how hard you have to work, the grit, the like, but it's just different. And we know this because Mike Tyson said it so well. You have a perfect plan until you get punched. And I think it, it speaks <laughs> so well, right. even like Kyokushin athletes, Taekwondo athletes, people who get hit with other strikes. Kyokushin is a great example. They get hit with like the hardest low kicks, head kicks that knock them out. But the second you add punches to the face, they're like, I have no idea. And you can just see they're just avoiding it so much. I think there's something to that, that it's like, she just want to learn what it's like to get hit and and not go down and not be afraid of it. And then from there, it's like boxing and, and Muay Thai. It's like they're really simple sports in terms of how many techniques you have. I mean, it's like, like I look at Jiu-Jitsu. Jiu-Jitsu is so complex. It's interesting for me to look at now as an older martial artist or a colleague. Like you see so much variation. But if you look at Muay Thai, it's like eight limbs. How many knee strikes do you have? Like two yeah. variations and then the other variations, which leg you throw from. So four. How many kicks do you have? You have your teep or roundhouse kick. That's really it. How many punches do you have? Jab, cross, hook, uppercut, right? And how many elbow strikes do you have? Like six, if you don't count like spinning elbows. Right. So it's really simple. Right. And boxing is the same way. Like how simple is it? Slip, slip, roll, block, jab, cross, hook, uppercut. That's really it. But how easy is it to do those moves? The nuance, the strategy, that's what became really interesting for me. And for me, that's why I, I always tell people like, even though it looks like I do three different jobs, my being is I'm learning how to be a really good coach of movement under pressure. And all three just give me a lens of practicing it in a different way, but it's always deriving from the other side. So when I'm a Muay Thai coach or a striking coach, it's always looking at biomechanics. How do I make it easier? How do I make it more efficient? How do I have good structure? It's always thinking about how to, as a strength and conditioning coach, like what are you doing the rest of the day? How can I bolster my strength? How can I rest? How can I, do all these things to improve my skill performance. And then the skills is what gives me that aspect of understanding where strength 
training matters and where it does not matter, right? And I think that's a really important distinction to, to make as a strength coach where you go, I'm trying to build attributes that will carry over into sports. I'm not mimicking the sport. At the end of the day, sometimes we mimic too much. It, it, it makes us lose track of what is the most important thing to train, which is actually the quality they can't access in the gym and teach them lessons in the gym that will carry over to their martial arts movement practice. Wow. Wow. Well, drink my Budweiser. I love it, dude. I love it. No, that makes a lot of sense. And That's an yin and yang of, of, of personality. Right? <laughs> yeah. Thoughts and Budweiser. I love it. I love it. So, so Jason, I want to talk a little bit about travel. Mm-hmm. And my, my, my channel, especially Get Lost with Nick Hefke, has an element of traveling attached to it. And that's what really was yes. the game breaker in my life in regards to finding personal fulfillment and I guess exploring new opportunities and exploring new places around the world where doors started opening up for me and amazing things started coming together. And please correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that was a similar game breaker in your life as well. Yeah. And I really want to dive deep into that. So talk to me a little bit about how that has influenced the Jason Park that we see today. Yeah, I think, you know, everything I really love doing, right, I talk about in daily life, it's really around people. It's really around, like, understanding humans, right? And it's coaching at the end of the day, whether I'm a doctor of physical therapy or I'm a strength and conditioning coach or I'm a striking coach, like, it's coaching, right? Understanding the person I have in front of me and how I can mold them. For the future and, and fighters are, are especially that right or any professional athletes like they're already kind of pre-designed as a car my job is to understand what kind of car they are how to tweak things engineer things so that they are able to perform at their best but you're going to have athletes that are good at some skills and not good at others so it's like not about teaching my way but teaching with my breadth of experience how to maximize their potential their their system and i think Travel, I think the two ways to really understand humans is one, reading, and two, travel, right? And they're equal, right? Because with books, you can travel to other people's minds and other people's experiences, right? So if you don't have the money or time to travel now, you can do it through books and understanding how people think. And... uh you know, podcasts are now an extension of that, right? Uh, but travel, if you can actually have the opportunity to travel, I always say take it because, I mean, it's just, it goes back to the same question you asked about how it felt going into that boxing gym. People who have not traveled much are very afraid of the, the uncomfortability and the yeah. lack of certainty, of certainty in travel, mm-hmm. especially if they've never been there before. Correct. And I think for me, one of the biggest gifts my parents gave me is that one, you know, having relatives in Korea, most of my summer vacations were not to travel on family trips, but it was like going to the motherland in Korea and being with grandparents. Mm -hmm. Right. And that threw me immediately into two kinds of ways to learn about myself, which is one, I learned about my heritage, right. Got to see it, got to hear it got to eat the food, get to understand like how people live their life, right? Um, in a different way than what I grew up in LA. Uh, but the other part is experiencing another way that I'm still the other. So what I mean by the other is like, are you part of the homogenous society or not part of the homogenous society? I joke that in America, people will see me as Asian first, American second. Right? And this is a big part of our conversation that we're having in the country now with all the different cultures talking yeah. about it. I think it's a really important conversation that's long overdue. But you know, the other thing is, and I know a lot of Asian Americans will, will agree with me on this, is that when I'm in Asia, I'm in Korea, I'm American first, ah. <laughs> Korean second. Yeah. They can tell right away. 
by the way. I totally know what you mean, man. Yeah. Same with me. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, and, and I think we all experience that other in different ways. And I think part of what you're seeing with the tribalism right now is it's weird because it's like about talking about how they might be the other and feel oppressed or ironically they don't understand what it feels like to be the other. So they are saying everyone is complaining about how they're othered, marginalized. So I'm going to say how we're marginalized. <laughs> and that's why you see it in like, like people with who are like white or they might have means and money or like whatever side you're on the left or the right you're talking about. You see that kind of conversation coming up too, where they're like, me too. It's like, you don't like the Me Too movement, but you're talking about the Me Too about yourself. <laughs> oh, dude, I I do not like that Me Too movement because I'm coming out. <laughs> I think, I think that's one of the great things of like when you travel is for people who don't get that natural occurrence, you learn like what it feels like to not be the norm. Right. And to see like, who am I? Because I got this question a lot when I was growing up. They're like, I don't like like, you know, Caucasian uh, Americans are like, oh, I don't have a culture. I'm white. And I was like, yeah, you have a culture. You like baseball. <laughs> you have hot dogs. Like, yeah. things that like, I never grew up having, you know? Like, even though I lived in the States, like, I'm not going to have that. Um, not naturally. That's what I consider, like, like, white people food. And it's great. It should be celebrated. It should be recognized that that's 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 why I have empathy for, um, you know, people who are in the majority because they feel like they're, they don't understand who they are either. And you can see that in Koreans in Korea. You can see it with white Americans or black Americans here in the States. Mm. So I don't think, yeah, there might be better, like, uh, kind of like, you could have a better experience, but you could still have a lack. Right. And and this goes back to why I love about travel and I love about martial arts is with travel, it's like you get to see how you exist in other places. And I'll talk about this with when I lived in Korea, like being a kid who didn't speak the language clearly, kids see you as another, and guess what? You're you're like you're the American who can't even speak Korean, like you sound like an <laughs> idiot. Like, so like, you're like, oh, so these should people who look like me should be my friends, but I don't fit in here either. So I grew up a lot in those trips like constantly going like, how do these people live? Like just watching. Like, why do they have that kind of haircut? Why do they like certain books or toys? And it could be the same as me or it could be different. And just trying to understand people, right? Um, and having that at an early age really led me to be interested in traveling other places. And that's where my parents were really helpful in that when I was in middle school, they didn't have the time to go travel to like Europe and other places. So they sent me on two really influential school trips. I remember like with a social studies teacher and like one of those like nice. educational, like, was was like EF <laughs> tours. I was way too naughty for that. Yeah. They were like, yeah, dude. But like, that's where like, <laughs> yeah. I, I got to travel, got to see things, got to just experience like, oh, these are different countries. So we went first, first trip was, um, it was to Germany and to Eastern Europe. So it was like from Berlin Where'd you to, go in to Munich Europe? and Hungary, Budapest, <sighs> and then Croatia, uh, let's see, Austria. Yeah, Budapest is beautiful. Oh, it's a um, fun place, Prague, ladies and gentlemen. Probably okay. one of my favorite places to go to. Another beautiful. fun place. You know, first place I drank beer yeah. by myself. Yeah. I remember <laughs> passing out on the street yeah. Yeah, at the age of 13. Now we're talking. And then, uh, you know, the second trip was, I think, to England and France. Right? And each one just shows you different parts and shows like, oh, you think Europe is Europe, but it's very different. Yeah. And uh, it just sparked an interest. I think that was one of the best investments that they ever made because from that point on, I was like, I wanted to travel. I was curious about traveling and continue following through with that. Um, 
and, and the part about martial arts I would bring up is once you're inside a tribe, the beauty is that you have a tribe everywhere you go as long as that exists. So like Muay Thai, like, well, it's like what we're talking about. You want to go to Colombia, I go, well, I have friends in Medellin who, who are coaching right now at IFMA for the Colombian national team. So you have homes there, right? It's how did you get to meet me? It's like you knew uh, boxing works through John Wayne Parr and yeah. Angie Parr. So yeah. you got connected and you're like, oh, I know who I want to look for. Same thing for me. If I go to Australia, if I go somewhere and you have a connection and also you'll meet more people who, if you vibe and now you have a common connection, now it's like the door opens and now you have friends all over the world. And even like in COVID, that's such an important thing because we're living our experience. I think it's tempered by going, how's it going for our brothers in Australia? How's it happening for New Zealand? How's it happening for South Africa? How's it happening in, in England? And I think that balances us. It centers us instead of going like, woe is me. Our life is the fucking worst. We're having it so bad. Like, well, just take a breath, look and go, oh, like that's how another person's having it bad. And you become grateful for what you do have. That's very beautifully said, man. I, I absolutely agree with you on that. And I, I want to dive deep into and talk a little bit about Thailand. And your experience Thailand. over in Thailand. And I would love for you to walk me through what made you decide to go ahead and go to Thailand, what that all looked like, what your goals were for when you went out to Thailand, what were some things that you were able to accomplish, and how has that had a significant or any impact at all into you now cornering some of the top UFC, MMA, just pretty much anybody into the big name MMA organizations. I mean, you've cornered Anderson Silva and Brian Ortega and literally some of the most recognizable names in these organizations. Mm -hmm. And you were their exclusive Muay Thai coaches for quite some time. And walk me through how that all came together. Walk me through how... You were able to go from 15-year-old Jason, who was walking into the front door of Boxing Works Gym, Mm -hmm. curious and eager to learn a new art, a new striking style. Mm -hmm. And now you're being on UFC pay-per-view main events, wearing awesome (laughs) walkout-like face masks in order to fight Volkanovski for the world title. Yeah. Talk to me about how that came together. I find that unbelievably fascinating about you. And why don't you share that with how that Sure. Happened? I mean, I think it's one of those things that, like, looking back, it is, it's, you, you know, I, I know a lot of people like to say the word amazing for so many things, but this was amazing. That's <laughs> bad, dude. You know, right? I, I, I look at it now, like, this is my 20th year in, in Muay Thai, like, because now I'm wow. 35. So I think about, it, like, man. What a ride it has been. And it is now, what, 28 years as a martial artist? Which is weird to say. Because you never, I don't even like to think of myself as 28, much less 35. To say 28 as a martial artist is both cool and very, man, I'm getting older. Um, But in Thailand, like, so basically I started at Boxing Works. You know, I trained with Brian Pope Joy and, and a good core group of people, one of the, Older brothers I've had over there was Mark Beecher, oh, yeah. who was also Ultimate Fighter coach, trained Kevin Ross, Matt Brown. And, and you know, having Brian Popejoy as a coach who was known to be something special, but we weren't a big gym yet, you know? So mm-hmm. I heard, always heard that reputation of like, there's something special about him. But people couldn't put their word to like what that would be in potential. Gotcha. So for everyone who says, man, of course you would be with Brian Popejoy at Boxing Works. Now, because he's hitting his 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 like climax. Like he has fighters in one. He had he was the head coach of the USA Muay Thai team. I go, yeah, it took now people are taking recognition of it, right? But the person I knew like that exists now existed for me back then. So I saw something special in him 
and others saw it, but they just didn't know what to do with it yet. Mm -hmm. And uh, seeing him do what he has done with, you know, his three generations of fighters, Mark Beecher and Evan Square before me, and then my generation of fighters, and now with Jackie, Janet, um, Janet Todd, and Jackie Puntan, and Nathan Ward, and the new group of fighters from Boxing Works, like, you know that our core fundamental view of Muay Thai, it works. Mm-hmm. And I think Mark Beecher being another guy, he uh, traveled like it gave me that inspiration. So one of the paths that I saw for both of them and also, you know, my coaches where I, I lived and trained at in Philadelphia during university was Thailand was a path for us. If I we're very traditional Muay Thai gyms, Thailand is a path. I need to go experience that. It's like the Mecca. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's without a doubt because you won't really understand, like you have this fetishization in, in, in lots of things, but especially in martial arts where it's like, if you practice a Japanese martial art, you want to be Japanese. You practice a Korean martial art, you want to be Korean. If you practice a Thai martial art, you start wanting to everyone saying Thai phrases. And I like, still do this yeah. to like everybody in LA. They're like, uh, no, stop. Yeah. <laughs> but but the question is why, right? And I think you living in Thailand, you have a different idea of what it is not this abstract right and so i always took that in my mind like i don't want to be blind to it and ignorant i want to go experience it so i had planned during college like to go for summers and save up money from summer jobs but you know planning to go to medical school you always have internships and other volunteer experiences that came up so i just saved up money and just never used it so after graduating, going to Thailand, it's like, oh, like, what am I going to do with this money? What am I going to do with time? A new medical school is looming. Professional life is looming. So, like, this is my time. I don't have rents. I have a place. I just graduated from college. So, I went. So, how old were you, Jason? I was 20, turning 22. So, 21, about to be 22. Yeah. And it's first trip, solo trip to Thailand. Yep. Walk me through that. So, yeah, like I had a sum of money and I was like, okay, let's just go and see how long this lasts. And I booked a one-way ticket. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, had my travel visa. So it was like three months with and going, okay, I'm going to get an extension. Yeah. And then at six months, I'm going to go, not sure what I'm going to do. Do I leave and come back? You know, how am I going to handle that? Right. Um, like okay let's go my goal was for nine months right I, that's what i thought um and i said like let's just stay as long as i can uh you know in that time like you know uh my coach's uh his wife is uh she had a, a passage so she's uh, the youngest daughter of ajahn chai sirisu so mm-hmm. Their family's well-known in Bangkok. Usually, like, Brian and Tiki always invite us to stay at their house if any of the students were going to Bangkok. But unfortunately, uh, Tiki's mother passed, like, right before I was going to leave. So Brian, when I called him, he's like, what should I do? Where should I go? He was like, you know, unfortunately, just the way things are right now, like, you know, like, we're not in a position to really host or, like, kind of guide you through, like, what do I do? Like, I was planning to go there. Like, I have no direction. Time to hit up my buddy Nick. That's for some advice. So, <laughs> yeah. what he told me was, just do what I did, which is, go to a gym, trust your intuition, look and see if they are actually getting better. Things are of quality. And if it's not, go to a new place. I was like, I'm here to beat the Ooh. shit out of the strongest guy here. I was like, that's the plan so i found you know going over there i i was heavily influenced like i was a big fan of anderson silva for a long time oh yeah and that was this is right after he clinched and took out uh rich franklin twice i was like i definitely want to learn how to own the clinch so when i went there i and another fighter i watched actually at that time who heavily influenced me is pedex and he just fought Anwa, and that's a 
a textbook fight for everyone who wants to see how I believe Muay Thai can work. That's a fight to watch. You know, and those two fighters being such so adept at different techniques, but also understand how to use clinch dynamically, not just to hold people, but to hold and release and give, and like just control people, right? Almost like standing jujitsu was beautiful. Um, so I found a clinching gym that's very famous in Bangkok called Kick Come From Gym. Uh, still very thankful and still have friends to this day that have come from that time there. And I stayed there for the first five months. And, you know, to just show how fortuitous life can be, it's like, uh, I remember the first day I got picked up by my friend William, who was the translator and kind of coordinating everything with all the foreigners. And Jack, had the, he was a promoter as well as the gym owner, right? So they picked me up at 1 a.m. in Bangkok. It shows, you know, a really good sign that they at least care enough to pick you up. Instead of having a taxi right. from Suvarnabhum Airport in the mid, like, and to find this gym, right? <laughs> yeah, you know how crazy that can be. So, oh, you know, they did this right thing. They, you know, we ate at the airport. They drove, he drove us in, got to the hotel, got me into the hotel, and the next day took me to the gym. Did you eat at that little food court at the very bottom of BKK? Yeah. Yeah. 60 bot meals? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which is yeah. supremely overpriced once you actually go into Thailand. I know. But once you're like a foreigner, you're like, this is so cheap. I'll take 10. Yeah. Right? Dude, that's so what, good. Dude, that's $2 a fee, $2 a dish. I, uh, I, I've i flown out of BKK I don't know how many times. Um I mean, I've flown predominantly out of Don Wang Airport. That's oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Airport, Bangkok. BKK is a little travel hack. It's got a little food court at the very bottom. And, you, and it's awesome, right? Yeah. And it's cheap as hell. And the food's good. But if you compare it to street food in Bangkok, you're right. It's 30 baht more, more expensive. Yeah. Which is like a dollar US. So, oh. Um, yeah. But yeah, you know, one of the things that's crazy about being at a good gym of caliber is... It draws the right people to it, right? Mm-hmm. And so if any of the good gyms in, in, because I get this question all the time, I was like, I don't know exactly which gym to recommend to people because I have to look and see who are the trainers at each of the gyms and what are like the the states right. because things change so quickly in Thailand, right? Fighters go, come, they don't, you don't know whose trainers are there. That stuff matters for you to actually learn. Mm-hmm. But brand matters a lot too and being of a good brand, you know, it's going to bring good people around. Um, and so the first day I woke up, I remember when I stayed at the gym, so this is my second day, I woke up to the sound of just hearing the bags being kicked. Just like, I shall like, Way. like, like and like just, what the fuck is that sound? <laughs> and you walk downstairs and you like, you just see everyone just training like robots. Yeah. And that day, like this, it's funny to say this as IFMA is going on right now in Bangkok, but um, the my friend Marius, who's in a Polish fighter who lives and trains people in, in London, great coach, he introduced me to like a lot of the foreigners there and all the ties. And he was a, he was great because in the first month and a half I was there, he was the one to kind of show me because he's been to multiple gyms over the years. He kind of like ran with me, talked about this. Oh, this is how you go to 7-Eleven. This is what you do here. You know, got you acclimated, right? Which is huge. But the time I went there, he also introduced me to Andre Kulubin and the whole Belarusian national team that was there. Wow. My first month of watching the Belarusians and meeting Andre Kulubin on the very first day. It's like, that's an experience that you can't... Reciprocate. Like, yeah, that's, that, that, that's like... I have to always look back at these experiences and go, man, I know we we're just stuck on the first day of Thailand, you know, but I want to go into the nuance because I think it's really important. Like I remember I asked Andre, what's Belarus? Because I had no idea what's Belarus. And like, you know, it opened my world to what the Soviet Union was. Like then you start meeting people from Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, Lithuania, all the countries that you don't really think about. We only know of them as like, I call it like James Bond villain countries, right? Uh-huh. But like being there, you're like, now I have a face, I have a person to attach that to. 
it's a real place in the globe that I can travel to. It just opened my world. And it, I, I remember the first time I went uh, to be uh, like on the USA uh, Muay Thai team's uh, medical staff, right? Uh, at IFMA. And some coach was like, I don't think you'll understand IFMA, like Muay Thai. And I was like, mm, I think I'll understand it pretty well. Because of something like that, where I got to train with Belarusian national team so early on. And that's what's so beautiful about Thailand. It's like, if you go to the right places, truly top caliber people are coming. And you've seen this multiple times. Oh, yeah. In multiple generations right now, Tiger is very big because yeah. all the MMA fighters in that region of Australia, Russia, mm-hmm. China, Korea, like that's why you see a difference of caliber of striking and clinching from those countries in the UFC because they're training their talent. They're training with other people who are thinking of the same problems. So it's a lab. And, and that leads me to thinking of how I want to create a lab here in Los Angeles that is thinking of problems and understanding the fundamentals, but also trying to see what are the skills you need in the future. Awesome. So I know we only got to our second day in Thailand, but I just wanted to go into that, like to show like how much you can learn in just two fucking days. Right. And then the rest of what I learned in Thailand, a short story, we can go into more depth. It's just, well, one lesson. I think I learned that <laughs> if you stay for more than two to three months at a place, you start to realize, like, people get excited when they go to Thailand, like, any new country. Like, this is the best place. It's so much better than America. <laughs> so much better from where I come from. But then you realize, at the end of the day, you're still stuck with yourself. So any unhappiness or happiness you bring, it's not because of the place. It's because of the mood you're in. Wow. The person you are in, right? Wow. So, that's, like... That's deep, dude. And so after three months, you go... It really sucks to wake up every morning and run like eight to 10 miles and to get up again in the afternoon and do it again. Like, it's not fun. Like, I enjoy Muay Thai, but man, you know the feeling of training full time. Like, I have never been as tired like that (laughs) in my life. I would have to like... My first camp. Yeah. Oh my God. And like, just so I can tell to all the viewers, like, I always joke, like, you take three-hour naps, two-hour naps in the afternoon, you try to sleep seven to eight hours. At a certain point, you get so tired that you, you close your eyes, and then it feels like you just close your eyes and open them back up, and you're like, eight hours have passed, and I have to do it all over again. Three hours passed. Oh, I have to run again. <laughs> and it's just like a nonstop, like, <laughs> cycle of that. But... What I realized was, you know, we always talk about ties as they're supernatural and they, you know, they're so good. But what I learned from that was when my excitement lapsed, I looked at them and I go, they're not any different from me. They're also not having the, it's not because of just fun. It's discipline. It's the job. You have to put in the work. And you have to put in the work, not just half-heartedly like like you might not like it but you have to throw the technique like it fucking matters every time otherwise you're practicing the wrong thing i think that's what i realized why ties are so good yes they've done it for so long they have bites but they're not like if they love it that's a a blessing but for the most part they don't like it anymore or probably less than most of us right because they're doing it make money for their families literally but if you look at how they train they put their whole heart into it because maybe they don't like the sport but because they know this is, could change their family's life so they're going to do everything for it and that's what i realized was first three months you're like excited to be there you're learning a lot after that, it's like it's the same food there's nothing right new. it's like the most exciting thing was to go get a new book at kinokuniya or to go watch a new movie. Like <laughs> that's the most joyous thing. So you realize that it's not because of joy or because I'm motivated to do this, that you get good. It's when you're not motivated that you still put in the same effort. Wow. That's powerful, man. Yeah. That's powerful. I love that. And when you're not motivated, you still continue to hack yourself to continue to put in the same effort. 
Yeah, and as we talk about this, I think that's a life lesson that absolutely that really translates to my understanding of how to get good at anything. I look at Muay Thai and boxing to be my first skill that I got really good at in terms of performing, and then I translated that into strength and conditioning. Yeah, and then when I became a physical therapist, like, oh, I already know the path. I just have to find how to do it within this new field. I think now I enjoy having conversations with actors, like musicians, film people, business people. It doesn't matter what the field is. The skill sets develop the same way. You learn the techniques. You practice with diligence. You ask people who have more experience. You're always constantly thinking about it. There's no special trick. The only trick is going there and to opening yourself up and and listening more than you're speaking i think wow. that's really it i love that i love that i mean when just hearing that firsthand and especially within this conversation um and kind of chiming in on what you said about how that applies to just an overall life lesson i mean dude that that discipline of when you are just tired, over it, completely done with it, like, oh, God, I can't be bothered, fucked, screwed. Uh, I just don't feel like doing this today. But still hacking yourself or, you know, making sure that you push yourself to continue to keep using the same same type of will and effort as you would if you were fresh and excited to do it. Please correct me if I'm wrong, is a recipe to really create a world champion. Yeah, I think... In whatever it is that you do, I think, that discipline... I think that, the world champion is... It's really... It's two things, really. It's, it is that, right, where you're listening, observing, right? Um, and people can do it in different ways. Right? Some people do it like me, where I ask tons of questions. I can annoy people. But I'm just like... It, it, it extends to how I fight I'm jabbing, I'm keeping, I'm like gathering information. Yeah. Right? I'm prompting the responses and seeing what comes out. Other people might be just being a fly on the wall. There's different ways that people can observe and listen, but it's in that position, like paying attention and like mm-hmm. digesting the information. So it, it, it can go in two ways. One is ignoring it and not paying attention. Or two is learning by rote memory, but not really digesting what is Mm. coming through right and so i think that's where the curiosity is so important being curious is the most important quality because if you're just listening because you want to get an a not really curious you're just Mm. doing it because of the punitive incentive to avoid the punishment or to look good but it's really by being curious that like you really truly will listen to the whole dimension of it right and i think the other thing is being imaginative so what i mean by that is like how can you imagine like how i might use this in practice and shadow boxing training like being imaginative of a solution right and this is something that i can say i've seen brian ortega i've seen anderson silvis that they take the fundamentals and they're just can I grab a little bit more juice from this or can I cut it a different mm. way? It's still a cut, but it's like maybe this angle will change the the taste of the dish, right? And I think that's what makes them really good. Is that, yeah, they can do fancy stuff, but it's all based on fundamental principles that that's where they get really fancy because they're so good at the little finite adjustments at the basics. Gotcha. But they're imaginative with it. And I think if you feed into that imagination, like that only comes from practice because right now you might only see a punch and go, Oh, it's a right punch. But if you, if you start to see the dimension by practicing playing, you're like, Oh, that person threw it a little bit differently. You start to read, um, like the different dimensions of it. So I think it's those two things. You need curiosity and you need imagination. That's what will make you into, and then I guess discipline, you know, and consistency. Absolutely. That's the other thing. Um, and that's why I really love as a strength coach, there's this one principle we call greasing the groove. 
which is, it comes from Pablo Sassoline, right? Like a very concept he brought over from the Russian system of training strength. And it's like train, like a pull-up. If I'm not good at pull-ups, I could try to do three sets of 10, but I can't even do five. We've all been in that position. You know, oh, yeah. So can't even do five and I need to do three sets of 10. So how am I going to do that? Well, he says like, well, five is hard. Break it down to one, two, or three reps. You can do one, two, or three reps. But do it often throughout the day. So the example he will often give is have a pull-up in your house. Every time you walk by it, do one or two, right? And then eventually becomes doing four at a time, five at a time, but throughout ah. the day. But I think one, why that's good is you get ample rest in between your training. Two, you get to build up the volume that you can't do in one session. But throughout the day, you can still do 30 reps because you're doing two, two, two throughout the day. So you can do what the three sets of 10 were supposed to be. But I think the third thing that's the most important is you're engaging your mind and your body, your nervous system into going, how do I do this? And having to figure it out again, right? We all know the feeling of being warmed up, like this is easy. But it's the warming up sometimes, getting in sync, that's hard. But I think when you practice it more often throughout the day, even if it's not a long period, it just becomes more integrated into you. It becomes a part of you. So I, I extend that a lot because I go, I'm working slipping. I might go, you don't need to do it just at practice. Do it like for five minutes. Do it for like two minutes. Whatever amount of time you can give yourself, just go into it. I remember there were times that I would just like practice like a slip to one side and then just go about my day. And then like, I'm in the market walking and go just like one slip and then come back. I'm not a weirdo with shadow boxing, but just like practicing the maneuver of pushing off and then slipping and then going, okay, cool. I did that one rep and then just go about my day. Wow. So, so Jason, before we wrap this up, I really want to touch in on you, who you are today. Let's talk about that. I really want to dive into that. Now, you currently train, corner, and are involved in so many world champions from all different discipline of martial arts corners. Uh-huh. And f- to throw a few names out there, Brian Ortega, Anderson Silva. And I know that you had mentioned in this podcast that you had always looked up to Anderson. Yeah. Right. How did you get the opportunity to become his striking coach? How did you get the opportunity to walk out with Brian Ortega in his biggest moments? Walk me through that and apply that back to the 15-year-old kid. You know, I think one of the biggest things is that that I say is, is a secret to my success is that I always knew that I could do something special at the end of the road. So I believed that I could become a, a striking coach to top athletes or a strength and conditioning coach for top athletes or fight, you know, in, in this level, right? I go, I know I can do it. But where I always stressed out was, how do I get to the next step? Perfect. So that's, I think, the paradox that I was in because people were like, you're really confident that you know that you can make it. But you're always stressed, like, how, how do you get to the next step? Like, like where's your next athlete? Like, who are you going to work with? And I think that's part of the, the secret sauce is that I believed in myself in the long term. But I knew how much I didn't know in the short term. So I was very hungry and very, like, curious to fill those gaps or to build on the foundation that I already have. Those are, that's a very subtle yet significant like point to make, which is like, I really stuck to my foundation. I'm still close with my, my boxing works crew and my coach 20 years because I believe in that foundation. It taught me everything I knew and was prepared for Thailand and understanding Muay Thai. And I build on that foundation every day. But I also was curious like, what are these things that kickboxer is doing or the amateur boxing system that I learned? Like, how can I add that into that system? And I think it just became a natural progression. I think 
one step was heading on to that. It's like, uh, never really coached for personal training much because I knew I was going to become like, at first it was going to be a doctor and I switched over to becoming doctor of physical therapy. Um, but I knew that was going to be my profession. So training people was really just for the curiosity of learning if I can coach people for fighting. So I always work with my athletes and I focus on three athletes and each one continued to do well. Um, you know, to lead to Anderson, like specifically, the funny story is like, I, I, I tell people like, I watched him when he fought Hayata Sakurai in Shuto so early on, before Pride, before the UFC. Um, and I followed him his whole career. I remember when I watched, him, I was like, there's something special about this person. And I followed him. Luckily enough, that person was Anderson Silva. And I think just watching him, you just go, how can I understand how his mind thinks? The lucky thing that happened was when, when he fought in the UFC, eventually his managers, George Ramirez and, and Ed Suarez, brought him over to LA to Black House, which was a home for a lot of the fighters from Brazil, especially for Anderson. They built that gym for him. It's his home. And I think that's a step that I can never have formulated in my life. That's out of my control. That's the luck right. that his managers lived here and they brought him over from Brazil to LA. Okay. And they built this whole gym, Black House, around this person. And I still remember to this day that I mailed George Ramirez, Ed Suarez, and Anderson a letter, each of them individually, to Gardena, to Black House headquarters and said, can I be a pad holder at the gym? I just came back to Thailand. I think I can do this, that. Uh, sent my resume. And guess what I heard? Zero. Nothing. Wow. And of course, that's disappointing. But I, I tell a lot of people, that's the normal response. Right. The abnormal response would be them going, sure, come on in. Or let's do an interview. The normal response is they probably won't pay any attention to you. And most people quit then. But for me, it was like, okay, I didn't get that. But knowing my end goal was train someone like Anderson Silva, I started coaching fighters. And then it drew me closer where those fighters brought me to Black House. Ah. My first MMA fighters were out of Black House. Got them to the UFC. And then, you know, it became like my first three pro fighters were the fighters that Anderson brought into be his training partners for the Nick Diaz fight. So that's when I go, oh, like he saw something because these are all athletes I work with. They all did better. And then also that's something where I had belief in myself where I go, I knew it's a mix. I know who I can believe in is, is a good pick. My intuition is good because that's the same people that Anderson Silva picked for his camp, who he entrusted. But I also saw that the things I taught them mattered, that it grew. And so I kept toiling in the lab, kept working, kept showing success. And then one day I got a call for a tryout. No way. And then I showed up, same thing, nervous, unsure, making sacrifices to get there. And then he said, you have a good energy and you understand the game. He said, do you want to go to Brazil? Nice! What? Wow, dude, that's sick. That's an awesome story, man. I love that. I love that. Wow. So then you went to Brazil. I went to Brazil. Where did you go from Brazil? Went to Rio. You went to Rio? Yeah. Oh, man, I'm going there on Sunday, dude. Man, jealous. Yeah, I know. Very good time. It's a good time. My, uh, Baja de Tujuca. That's where I'm going, dude. Yeah. I'll be in Baja at, at the start. I'll be in Baja for two weeks. And then I'll go over to Curitiba. Uh, and, Curitiba. Uh, yeah, I always say it wrong. Sorry, I'm a gringo. And um, and then I'll be in Argentina and Colombia. But you're gonna have to stop by the spider, kick, the new spider kick gyms. I think there's two now in Curitiba. Take some pictures when you're over there. I will for sure, for sure. I'm gonna yeah, be. I will really love that. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll definitely do that. Um, I had no idea they even had gyms out there. Yeah, I'll send you the address. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm going to, uh, 
I'll be stopping at Shootbox, uh-huh. and then um, I'm only gonna be out there for a week, and then yeah, I didn't even know he had a gym out there. I'm definitely when you're out there, I have a couple of other good gyms too. So, Beautiful. Yeah, same thing when you're in Rio. So definitely, let's touch base for sure, brother, for sure. So, so Jason, we're just going to wrap this up, and I and I want to say on behalf of the Believe Podcast Network, get lost with Nick Hefty. This was unbelievably fun. I had a great time talking to you. Your stories are absolutely amazing. I did okay. Um, I'm going to be invited back. Oh, absolutely. Come on. <laughs> Come on. But before, before we end this, I ask this question to every single one of my guests. What's the one thing that you would like to be remembered by? Mm. That's a real powerful question. Yep. Mm. I think I would like to be remembered for being someone who can see the potential in people and helping mm-hmm. them achieve that. I can see that in you. <laughs> I can see that in you, brother. That's a fantastic way to be remembered. Hell, if you died today, that's how I'd remember you. So, <laughs> uh, so ladies and gentlemen, Jason Park, again, thank you so much for coming on. I had a great time. And uh, that wraps everything up. So thank you, brother. you're welcome. Till next time. Till next time. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Get Lost with Nick Hefke. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with all your friends and make sure to tune back next week where we have another epic episode for you. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.